Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Um, I just had to add a little something on here before the show gets going. Uh, initially, this was going to be just one huge episode, basically like a five-hour episode, but I was on the top of the mountain. I had the head of Mazinger Z in my hand. I was about to throw it in the volcano, but I was stopped by the mighty one. Of course, I'm talking about uh, the internet uh, alpha male, Del Surat. He said to me that some of his friends had some difficulty with the 12 questions episode and that it was so large that a lot of them couldn't uh, download it. I guess I assume just I have like a powerful computer and a lot of room on my MP3 player. Not everyone. Some people are at work or something and you know, it just doesn't work out for them. So I thought, okay, it would be gloriful just to have one giant episode. And you'll hear me throughout the episode claiming this is the, the biggest mech episode of all times. It still is, ladies and gentlemen. It's just it's broken into two parts. And I did that for the convenience of the listeners. I don't want to be like, take all the glory for myself. So yes, Joe Surratt. He changed my mind. I'm going to split this into two parts, and this is how it's going to work. I'm just going to explain this. So if you hear me throughout the show saying, this is the largest mech episode of all time, being a dick, it's just that I assumed I was going to make one huge five-hour episode, but I split it up. So we're going to start off today with part one, and this is how it works. I have five guest reviewers, and then I do a review. So that's six reviews for part one, and then part two will have another five guest reviewers, and then I'll do a review. So that's 12 reviews in total, and who knows, part two might even have more um, reviewers added on so it should be a lot of fun we're covering a wide array of uh, super robots and mecha shows but i also wanted to add this i thought it was important um it seems relevant and i just thought i better say something on april 17 2010 carl masick passed away now this is very relevant and um it's too bad i really feel sorry for all the fans who grew up with his shows but mostly i feel sorry for of course Carl Masick's family. So, ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to dedicate the Mecha Madness to none other than Carl Masick. And of course, for those of you who are younger, who aren't aware, he's the man behind Robotech and Harmony Gold. He was part of Streamline. Um, he brought a lot of the early English dubs uh, to North America. And truly, he was a pioneer. And, um, you know, I said in the past many times that I didn't like what Carl Masick did. But we also have to understand the environment and the situation he had to work with. So you work with what you got. And um, he's a big part, a big part of why um, anime is what it is today. Carl Masick will be remembered as a pioneer, probably most famously for Robotech, especially in the United States. Here in Canada, when I was growing up, we didn't get Robotech on TV. I grew up with, we had Astro Boy and the Green Forest and Thunderbirds 2010. We didn't get Robotech, but I know that it was hugely influential, especially in the United States. So ladies and gentlemen, I dedicate this to the fans of Carl Masick and of course the man himself, the anime pioneer, Carl Masick. And you know, Mr. Masick, all I know when it comes to the abyss, the unknown, is I don't know. All I know is I don't know. I think that's an intelligent way to look at things. But if there is another place or another dimension, some place for energy to go, I hope you find your way with all the other good ones. So April 17th, 2010, let's remember Carl Masick. And now here we are. Here's part one, and um, next week I'll bring you part two. Now, some of the guest reviewers, you may wonder why I put your, your review either on part one, like maybe I want to be on part one, or hey, maybe I want to be on part two. The reason I put the guests in the order I did is simple. Some of the people got their reviews in on time. There was about six guys who needed more time, so I said that's cool. It works out because I'm doing two parts. So here are the guys that were... Um, they got their reviews in schedule. I got a lot of great guests, and it's going to be a lot of fun, ladies and gentlemen. So make sure you come back for part two. With no further ado, part one of Mecha Madness. Welcome to Mecha Madness. 
Hello, ladies and gentlemen, it's I, your humble anime slave, Regan Strongblood, and thank you for joining us for the Super Show, Mecha Madness, the All-Star Podcast, which will go down in history as the largest, the longest, just like in my pants, ladies and gentlemen, the largest Mecha review show of all times. And I did this as a statement, as a social experiment. I thought, why not go against the trend? People hate long episodes, long podcasts. People hate Mecca. I thought, you know what? This is for the old school fans. This is for the Daryl Surratt's. This is for my main man, Dane, from Anime Pacific. Hell, this is for Mazinga Zed, baby. That's right, it's Mecha Madness. Now, you may notice the real robot genre is much more represented than the super robot genre, but I will redeem that with a show, a series two, where I focus mostly on super robots. And ladies and gentlemen... I assure you I'll only be talking about the great super robots, the likes of Get a Robo, the likes of Mazinger Z. I definitely won't be talking about shows, silly shows, like Gold Lighten. We all know that Gold Lighten is a pretty much shitty show. Gold Lighten, you know, I know he used to show up and rap, but we don't want to see the likes of him around here, so thank goodness there'll be no more Gold Lighten. <laughs> Oh shit. Oh yeah, it's the return of Gold Light and the OT, the original Transformer, back to tell the truth, to set things straight. Check it and check it. Before you all talk, you fanboys get much surprise. It's me, the OT, with the Transformer Gold Light. Back on track, motherfuckers better listen. Those poor guys, motherfuckers, Transformers, the ones I be dissing. Yo, back in 81, times I know what's going on. I'm the best in the rest. Who the fuck you think you are? I was chilling with the mega bitches, getting feeling it. No name's Cyclone In 84 you got picked up by Hasbro Claimed the OT I tried to rip up my cash flow I'm a badass Yanks Trying to sense this I grab my 
my mega balls and then I took a fat mega piss All the disbelievers thought I was long gone Then I got a fat check from the bitches at Catcom And now I'm back on track with my mission Fuck, off the climb is my ass he be kissing, yo I be real with gold, brother, and some magma We playing our bitches like they were saga We used to look like a sculptor on the photon Just have to take a zip, what I did after his home Oh, get a rover, better watch his act Don't claim the OT, yo, we know that you whack You're my combination robo and a fucking liar I combine with your mamas and your sister's vagina, yeah So next time you call Prime Transform It's all about me, the maximum performer G to the OLD, a gold line Back to claim OT, now I am thriving Yo, Prime! Now, boys and girls, if you try to look up the term Mecca in your Oxford Dictionary, you may find you come up short. But for those of you who don't know, Mecca is a genre of anime. Robots or machines, unmanned or piloted, some fly, some transform, and there has been several variations, subgenres, if you are, throughout its development. When we look back at the history of anime, there's no denying the impact that the Mecha genre has had and its continuous influence on what anime has and ultimately will become. Mecha anime may not be the unstoppable metal juggernaut it once was in Japan, but it still has a huge following. I mean, the genre helped spark the North American interest in Japanese animation, Robotech opened the door, and the super robot shows like Mazinger Z that were adapted in the late 70s also contributed to the waking awareness of the Western fan. Sci-fi fans in the West had never seen cartoons dealing with such fantastic, imaginative creations as the super robot genre, and the real robot shows dealing with serious issues like tyrannical governments, corporation cover-ups, death and war. The Japanese influence seeps even deeper than some of you may even realize. Your Transformers, your Voltrons, hell, even your Gobots all come from the burning Japanese hearts and minds. 
There's no denying the fine quality of the Japanese mecha fans. They remind me of the Japanese pro wrestling fans. They love something and they respect it. They don't have to look down on their hobby, but because of the obsessed devotion, they create an environment where mecha becomes a beautiful art form. Mechanical design in anime is the best in the world. Japan's love for robots helped contribute to the imagination and the passion of the artists and the creators of the robot genre. Mecha is for children. They sell toys with simple plots, fun monsters, and the good and bad are black and white. Mecha is also for the intellectual and a beautiful art form. Gundam may not have been the only show. Several shows helped build the bridge to the real robot genre, but Gundam was the final block in the defining moment in the birth of a genre that dealt with a wild world that was fantastic but more believable. The good and bad depended on your point of view. War wasn't fun, but a terrifying and deadly tragedy. Robot faces didn't smile. They were cold, and their guns shot to kill. Now, it's easy for newer fans to take the wide variety of sci-fi and mech anime for granted. But there was a time when animation was silly and just for kids in North America. It wasn't something an adult should watch. Sure, there was great science fiction novels from Russia, Europe, Canada, and the United States. But in the realm of animation, where would we be without Japan? In the early 80s, animation could do what no live action sci-fi show could. Massive worlds, gigantic space battles, intricate mechanical design, the likes you could only imagine when reading a sci-fi novel. Some of the most important and defining moments in anime history were formed around robots. Osamu Tezuka's Astro Boy may possibly be the most important anime ever made in regards to style and technique. Gonagai's wild and over-the-top giant robots defined the original genre, the super robot genre. Gonagai's shows had human pilots piloting massive robots with insane power. Get a Robo and Mazinga Z may be the most beloved and well-remembered super robot shows of all times. Tessijin 28 and even Astro Boy are the true pioneers of Mecha though. Yokoyama's 1956 manga was later adapted into a 1960s anime about a boy and his robot and this would start it all. And this would echo throughout the genre, throughout the 70s and even the 80s. 1981's Gold Lighten that Punku was rapping earlier in the show is a good example of this. And of course the anime... The 1960s anime I refer to is none other than Tetsujin 28. Now, where Yokoyama undoubtedly began the super robot genre, there's no denying Gonagai would define it. Mazinger Z, Get a Robo, Great Mazinger, Grandizer dominated the early 70s, along with an interesting show, Ray Dean, which really came up with the mystical aspect of the super robot genre. And two very important people worked on Suzuki's show. Of course, those people being Tadao Nagahama and the legend himself, Tamino. Speaking of Mazinger Z, why don't you Americans get aboard with the rest of the world and stop saying Z? Say Z. It's Mazinger Z, not Z. Though A, B, C, D, E, F, Z kind of, you know, rhymes cooler. I digress. Speaking of Tadao Nagahama, Tadao Nagahama's Robot Romance Trilogy, which includes 1976 Combattler V, 1977's Voltus V, and my personal favorite of the trilogy, Brave Leader Daimos from 1978, helped lay the foundation which would ultimately build the bridge to the real robot genre, along with anime legend, once again, Yushiyuki's Tamino's masterpiece, Zambot 3. These shows, along with many others, ultimately turned the tide 
from the fun-loving, laughing robot with bright colors to ultimately a new sub-genre in Mecha, the real robot genre. Now, real robot genre is my favorite kind of Mecha show. Finally, science fiction, the likes we've never experienced on a screen, a TV screen, was born. 1979 was the year real robot was fully conceived. Tomino continued where he left off with Zambot 3 to develop more serious plots and technology with a more reasonable science behind it. Gundam would explode into several different shows, some even going back to the super robot genre feel. But we're getting way ahead of ourselves here. Um, also, alternative universes would expand, of course, with Gundam Seed, Gundam Destiny, and a list of others. But Gundam, the original Gundam, dealt with topics never before realized on a super robot series. Now, the years 1983 to 1985 are, in my opinion, the very pinnacle of the real robot genre. With the original Gundam lighting the flame, shows like Zeta Gundam, Armor Trooper Votoms, SBT Lesnar, and Heavy Metal L Game were the raging fire. Now, these shows have never been matched for story, intensity, gritty, bleak war stories. The purest time of what truly real robot shows should be. Perhaps Armor Trooper Votoms is the ultimate tip of the real robot mountain. Let's not forget 1984 was the year robot shows exploded in the United States. Example, Transformers. Now, Votoms is unique and it's often overshadowed by the massive Gundam for obvious reasons, but Votoms is a very important and unique series. It took the serious topics of Gundam but placed them in a much more low-tech world, a gritty hard-edged science fiction. Votoms is the original hard science fiction anime. Super Robots had faces, personalities almost. Gundam still had fantastic machines, but they were tools. Machines of war, if you will. Now, Votoms took away the shiny metal, took away the face of the robot, and left you with a cold, rusty tank with a gun scope where a face once laid. Hard bullets instead of lasers. The robots had been replaced by the war machine, and the situations of war were finally clearly drawn. Ugly desperate and bleak, full of lies, death and despair, victims and men, full of doubt, full of hate, full of love, and a hope for peace. Gundam, Votoms, and Macross are, in my opinion, the three pillars of the real robot genre, and by far the most influential and important. In 1982, SDF Macross combined music, pop idols, the power of anime love with transforming war jet robots, giant aliens, and a compelling story to become one of the most outstanding, beautiful, and influential anime series in history. Now, the edited version of Macross Robotech might be the most important mecha show in the history of Western fandom. Noboru Ishiguro's unique vision was a nice change of pace from many similar shows. The shows that stand out are the ones full of passion. Passion from the creators, passion from the fans, and Macross would shape anime of the 80s, and it holds a very special place in my heart. Few shows compare to the influence and the quality of Gundam, Macross, and Votoms. There never was a time like the mid-80s for fantastic real robot shows. 
1983 to 1985 is, in my humble opinion, the golden bubble of the real robot mecha genre. Just like so many genres of the 80s and 90s, mecha of today seems to be a fusion of cute girls and boys and music with robots thrown in as an afterthought. Retro remakes of super robot shows made, I think, with mostly older fans in mind have helped, though. Shows like Giant Robo, Shin Mazinger, and New Getter Robo take super robots and change it into the extreme robot genre. And this gives me a little bit of hope. Now, no one can deny another robot show that set so many trends and in many ways changed the tide of the anime industry. And that show is 1995's Neon Genesis Evangelion, or Evangelion, if you will. A show that took the foundation, the genre, and threw it on its head. A show that explored the inner depths. I could talk forever, though. But it's nice to see shows like Macross Frontier, shows like Guran Lagan, Shin Mazinger, and the new Votoms OVAs, and the continuous expansion of the Gundam universe carry on the flag of Mecha. Perhaps we are at the dawn of a new genre, the fusion era, where many genres will be mixed into a bag. Or, on the other hand, perhaps, as often the case with American comics, Hollywood movies, and video games, history is doomed to repeat itself. And in the case of the real robot genre and the new super robot remakes, maybe that isn't really such a bad thing after all. So ladies and gentlemen, I give you a crazy fantastic dream. For the mainstream fan, this is ultimately a nightmare. This show is dedicated to the old school fans, to the hardcore fans, to those people who still believe in Mecca. And this show is crazy, it's large, just like the robots that we love. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the ultimate Mecca review show, the largest Mecca show review podcast of all times, Anime 82's Mecha Madness. 
Hello Anime 82 listeners, my name is Aaron Schnuth. Some of you might know me from my previous podcast, the Weekly Anime Review, which was later renamed the Warp Anime Podcast just because I was having trouble with my self-imposed weekly schedule. It's been a couple years since I've done any anime podcasts, but Regan dropped me a line and asked me if I wanted to be part of the Mecha Madness Podcast, and you know, how can I say no to Regan? Has an awesome show. This is an awesome idea, so let's get going. Now my first knee-jerk reaction to him asking me if I want to do a mecha show to review was, hell yeah, let's review Evangelion. But you know, I figured that was a little too uh, predictable, so I emailed him back and was like, so Regan, what other shows have people already uh, claimed, you know, what can't I review? And of course he sends me back this list of all these shows that I would have picked if I hadn't picked Evangelion. So, it's fate, I suppose. Here I am once again talking about one of my favorite anime, Neon Genesis Evangelion. And in particular, I want to talk about the 2007 feature film that was just released here, again, (laughs) second release, on both DVD and Blu-ray, though I'm going to be concentrating on the Blu-ray release, of Evangelion 1.11, You are not alone. As I said, Evangelion is probably one of my all-time favorite anime, and there's a reason for that. It is pretty much has the uh, distinction of being the show that really got me head over heels into this crazy anime hobby. You see, I had seen some anime before, and I had seen some in Japanese before. Though, it was a rarity back in those days, right? This is like the uh, early to mid-90s. I was really into comic books. And every few months here in Toledo, Ohio, there would be a comic book show down at the old uh, Ramada Inn Hotel, just down the road from where I live now. And me and my friends never missed these shows. Not only did we spend all our money on comics and other things throughout the day, But, you know, we were having so much fun just hanging out, you didn't want to leave. Which worked out since there was these uh, group of guys who would set up a VCR in the corner of the hall and show anime. In particular, they would show um, old anime ego releases, such as Bubblegum Crisis and Riding Bean. These were some of the first anime I'd ever seen in Japanese with English subtitles and at the time it really blew my mind like wow here's a stuff that is from Japan you know it was understood that quite a bit of cartoons did come from Japan but never actually saw these in its original language with obviously nothing uncut and just you know these are awesome shows of course being you know a high schooler and having a job where I wash dishes and supporting my comic habit, you know, it proved difficult to go out and buy any of these exorbitantly priced VHS tapes. We're talking like 30 to 40 bucks for maybe even one or two episodes. I know some of those early releases of Bubblegum Crisis was only one episode uh, tape, you know, and talking about like, what, there's eight episodes of that OVA, so it gets kind of expensive and I just didn't have the money at the time. Well, fast forward years later, I had dabbled a little bit in anime, because, you know, these movies would show up once in a while at the video store. 
One of the more memorable instances was finding uh, Legend of the Overfiend on the new release rack and taking that one home and just not being prepared for what I watched there. Uh, good times. I would say it was probably, I don't know, late 90s. This buddy of mine got his brand new DVD player and, you know, I hadn't seen any movies on DVD before, some over at his house. And we're over there playing video games, watching DVDs, and sitting in his living room of his apartment next to his TV set was a large stack of soon-to-be outdated VHS tapes. And among these was an Evangelion video. Like, I have had seen the Evangelion videos at the video store before. Especially at the uh, video game store that also rented anime. You know, they're very stylized covers and the art was very cool looking. And I'd read the back of the box and it sounded cool even though I really didn't understand, you know, entirely what was going on. Because, you know, I would never actually pick up the first volume. And that was the case here. This was actually... Um, Episodes 5 and 6 were the first episodes of Evangelion. I saw the Ray 1 and Ray 2 episodes. And after watching these, even though I'd started a few episodes in, I was really taken by the story, the atmosphere, the action, everything going on in these two episodes. I just had to see more. And fortunate for me, at the time I was taking classes down at uh, Bowling Green State University in rural Bowling Green, Ohio. And like most good college towns, they had an excellent video store. This was uh, Video Spectrum, which is still, as far as I know, open and operating. Awesome, awesome video store. This was well before the anime boom, but they had a nice selection of anime videos. Probably because in part that they had a pretty large collection of just foreign films in general. And they had all of Evangelion. And it was really funny watching these for the first time because, you know, I was totally gripped by the show. I was running all these videos, watching it, and obviously whoever was buying the tapes for the video store didn't really pay attention whether or not they were getting them all dubbed or all subbed. So you'd rent like three at a time, and you would watch one with the English dubbing, and then it would be the Japanese subtitles, you know, the subtitles of the Japanese language, that is. And then back to the English dubbing again, it was really back and forth. At the time, it didn't really strike me as odd just because I was glad to be watching these things, but thinking back to that, there's no way I would watch a show like that now. That is just so insane. But the show just really affected me in some pretty profound ways. It dealt with a lot of subject matter that was affecting me personally at the time. And just on top of it being a cool show, giant robots, fighting monsters, lots of action, plus this like underlying subplot where you don't really know what's going on and you have to kind of figure out for yourself. You know, it was just all these factors of things that I love from my media just all coming together at once. And I totally fell in love with it. And it set me down this rocky path of, uh, watching lots and lots and lots of anime which has led to me obsessing about anime recording podcasts about anime writing about anime you got pretty much all of it you know is all thanks to watching neon genesis evangelion so for those of you who have never seen evangelion what is the show about well it's a 20 some odd was it 23 24 
episode show that aired in Japan on TV from uh, late 1995 to early 1996. It deals with uh, kind of post-apocalyptic, not too far in the future version of our world. 80 to 90 percent, I believe it is, of the Earth's population has been wiped out by this event known as the Second Impact. So you have most of the Earth's population completely wiped out. And the story takes place in the city of Tokyo 3. Tokyo 3 is basically this fortress type city that is uh, created to defend itself against these giant monsters that appear pretty much out of nowhere coming from out of the ocean in typical giant monster style known as the angels. Uh, when you first start watching the show you have no idea why these things are attacking, why they're even expected because it's obviously not a surprise that these things are attacking to the characters in the show. Because this uh, organization, known as NERV, has uh, created these giant biomechanical robots, or creatures, depending which way you want to look at it, called the Avas, the Evangelions, which are there as their secret weapon to defend humanity against uh, angel attacks. Now when the show first starts out, you're introduced to Shinji Akari, who's a teenage boy. He is sent for to be brought to Nerf headquarters by his uh, father Gendo Akari, who is the uh, director of Nerf. Apparently uh, he's called for because only he and he alone can actually operate and pilot the uh, Evangelion, which they need him to uh, pilot so he can defend against the angel attack, which is uh, taking place as soon as the show opens. It doesn't waste any time getting down to the action, which is a great way to jump into a show like this, you know, just start it off with a bang. And from there, you know, I don't want to give too much of the show away because there is quite a bit to it, but you have these children who pilot the Avas who are pretty much Earth's last defense against these uh, angels creatures. And as the show progresses, you find out that there's a lot more to uh, the characters that meets the eye. Not only Nerve, not only uh, Shinji's father Gendo, but there's also this secret kind of Illuminati kind of shadow government organization called Sele, which is trying to pull strings behind the scenes, but other characters have their own ideas of what's going on. There's lots of uh, mysticism and religious stuff thrown in for good measure, kind of giving it a whole X-Files vibe. And then the show eventually ends its last two <laughs> infamous episodes where, you know, the show's building to this crazy climax, and then they just have these two episodes where it's basically just a voiceover with very little animation, not a whole lot going on. It's pretty much universally accepted at this point Gynax had run out of money and could not afford to uh, animate these last two episodes. But there was such a backlash from the fan base in Japan that the end of Evangelion theatrical movie was released, which answered some questions and created a lot more, which just infuriated the hell out of everybody. Because one of the more popular complaints about Ava is that it's just so damn complicated, don't know what's going on, you know, they don't just spell it out for you, you're expected to kind of dig deep into it and kind of try to figure it out for yourself, and you know, a lot of people don't like that. 
Which leads us to these brand new theatrical movies which are coming out in Japan. In 2007, Evangelion 1.0, You Are Not Alone, was released. This is the first of what's going to be a cycle or three or four movies, which is going to be a retelling and a completely, I guess you could say a reimagining, if not a retcon, of the old uh, Neon Genesis Evangelion TV show. Apparently it's supposed to address the main complaint that the show is way too complicated and, you know, it's hard to follow and everything. So, we'll have to see how it goes, you know? When these uh, remake shows or movies are announced, I'm always highly skeptical. Are they going to ruin something I like? So far, it's not so bad, checking out this first movie. Now, there's been three separate releases of this stupid thing. There is the original theatrical release, which is 1.0, and then they released the DVD, it was a 1.01, and there were some mastering issues with the colors in the animation, so that brought us to a second DVD and Blu-ray release with remastered video, which is the version I'm talking about here, which is 1.11. 1.0 had previously been released here in the US, and then, uh, 1.11 just came out, but you know, Funimation was really nice to tell everybody the new one's gonna be coming out here within, you know, six, seven months. So if you don't wanna feel cheated, just wait to the new release, which kinda nice that companies do that instead of just making you double dip within a year because that would really, you know, piss off everybody, I would think. So I waited on watching this movie or even buying it until the uh, 1.11 Blu-ray version came out. And let me tell you, it's awfully beautiful. The remastered video, just amazing looking in high def. It is really something to behold. Now, unlike other remake movies that have come out in recent years, such as the uh, Zeta Gundam and uh, Ghost in the Shell 2.0 movies, the Evangelion movie is basically a remade version of the TV show, right? They haven't reused any old animation. They've just recreated a lot of shots almost perfectly. Because I was really confused when I first watched this, because you're watching some of it, and some of the shots are exactly as you remember. And then there's a bunch of new ones that are thrown in, which for a longtime fan as myself, I thought that it was really nice. And I don't want to talk too much about it, because I'm assuming most of you guys have probably seen most, if not all, of Evangelion at this point. I really wish you had because, you know, it's been out for a while and, and it's just one of those shows I think all anime fans should at least check out once. Love it or hate it, it's good to know about it, you know? It always comes up in debate since Evangelion seems to be a famous whipping boy of anime fandom these days. You know, a lot of people just like to badmouth it, but I personally love the show. But yeah, the Zeta Gundam and Ghost in the Shell movies, they basically took the old animation and put new CG over top of it, or uh, had all new like CG parts in with the old animation, which uh, personally, I did not, I don't like that. You know, it takes totally takes you out of it. You're like, okay, you're watching it, everything's the way you remember it, and then some real nice shiny kind of thing happens. That kind of happens in the Evangelion movies, but not to as, you know, its detriment. Since it's been totally reshot and reanimated, the new crazy animation sequences fit in really well with the rest of it. Nothing looks out of place. It's just when 
a crazy new CG animated thing, like with the last angel in the movie, for instance, takes place, it's just, it catches you completely off guard, because that's not the way you remember it being in the original show. For the most part, the uh, Evangelion 1.11 You Are Not Alone movie is a retelling, pretty much straight retelling, of the first six episodes of the TV show with very little change to them. It appears the next movie is going to get crazy with just all kinds of new kind of wacky stuff going on. But at least they started out keeping it with the story everyone's pretty much familiar with. Probably the easy into it so you're not, you know, jumping the shark right off the bat. There are some new parts though that if you're a longtime Ava fan like myself, you're going to really like and um, notice and appreciate that those are different and can tell how the story is going to unfold a little differently in this one than it did in the TV series. You know, you have certain characters showing up in the you know these first movie that don't normally show up to almost the end in the TV show and stuff like that. But if you haven't ever seen Evangelion, you can pretty much go into this movie without any prior knowledge and still get a good idea what's going on. All the major points are hit on. Uh, some things, you know, unfold a little differently from the TV show, but for the most part, it's all pretty much there. Since it's a movie and not six separate, you know, 25 minute episodes, it's a little more compressed for time. You have the whole uh, accelerated story feeling a couple times, especially with Shinji's development I felt early in the movie. You kind of jump. One thing will happen and boom, it'll jump to the next thing with little explanation. It's kind of, you know, explained later on through dialogue exactly what's kind of going on, so that's nice. So if you're a brand new fan, you're not completely left in the dark. But at the same time, you do get a little bit of the compression feeling with with a movie like this. There's other little things that have nothing to do with the story, which I thought were cool, like some of the product placements. In the uh, first Evangelium show, you know, there's lots of different little product placements, like the beer that Kusanagi's drinking, or just little things like that, where they kind of went hog wild with the product placement in the, the new movie. You know, everything from UCC coffee to Doritos to Lawson convenience stores are all prominently placed in the show, uh, as long as, as well as Kusanagi's beer. This time she's drinking both uh, Kirin and uh, Yabizu, which is, you can see that in her refrigerator, which is kind of a nice touch. I'm When it comes to Japanese beers, I'm a Kirin guy myself, the Ichiban. That is some good stuff, my friends. But as I said, it looks like in the next movie is when it's really going to get off the rails and get far and far away from the story we know and love with Evangelion. Like all the episodes, you know, would have the next episode preview. Well, this movie has a next movie preview and shows a couple of the Avas, the brand new Avas that are going to be appearing in the next movie, as well as the pilot, brand new pilot for one of the Avas as well. Another uh, new girl character, surprise, surprise there, right? So it should be interesting, especially seeing where they're gonna go with this, how different the story is going to be from the original TV series. But as I said, so far, they're keeping it pretty much on the rails, a little bit of deviation with this first movie, but the second one, which has been out in Japan in a while, and is going to be released, the DVD and Blu-ray over there, 
relatively soon. I believe sometime in May or June is when that comes out. I don't have an exact date on hand. But, you know, once that comes out, it should be available through the regular uh, distribution nodes. But, you know, Funimation should also be putting that out soon here, which is great for those that are big fans of the English dub and want a nice, pretty Blu-ray copy with in a language or subtitles that we can understand. So yeah, as I said, you know, Evangelion, it's a show, and not everybody likes this show. And a lot, a lot of people consider it to be a mecha show, as you're dealing with biomechanical giant creatures. But, you know, screw that. Eva is a classic. It's come out nearly, what, like, 15 years ago now, which just blows my freaking mind. It definitely struck a chord with the Japanese fans when it came out, and it definitely struck a chord with myself, as I said. You have all these characters who pretty much are all extremely mentally wrecked due to living through, well, Armageddon, as well as the lack of uh, parents or parents being absent or parents being dead, which is all kind of themes that I can personally relate to on a very personal level. So I highly recommend Evangelion. It's one of my favorite animes, as I said, and... This movie is a great starting point for anybody who's looking to get into it. So that's going to do it for my Ava review. just want to thank Regan for having me on the podcast. If you want to check out what I'm doing these days, or you want to check out my old podcast, you can find that over at WarpAnimePodcast.com. All the old episodes are still up. You can also find it in the iTunes store. If you want to see what I'm up to, you can check out my woefully uh, neglected blog, which is over at schnuth.com. That's S-C-H-N-U-T-H.com. And is also the home of my woefully neglected new podcast, The Schnuthcast, that I do with my wife, Diana. You can find that, too, over at schnuth.com. Or you can look for that as well in the iTunes store. Just search for Schnooth, and that'll bring up both my old anime podcast and my new Schnoothcast. So thanks a lot for listening, and thanks a lot, Regan, for having me on. It's been an honor and a privilege, and judging by uh, all the other reviews, this is going to be one hell of an episode, so let's get on to the next Mecha review.
This is Philip from the Eper's Choice podcast, and I am doing a review of Gunbuster for Captain Regan Strongblood of the Anime 82 podcast. Here we go. Quiet days in Okinawa. Ships ablaze in space. An unrelenting enemy. The closeness and comradeship of friends. These are all components of the 1988 OVA series Gunbuster or to give it its original title, Aim for the Top, Gunbuster. Directed by Hideki Anno, who's more famously known as the director of Neon Genesis Evangelion, it was his directorial debut, a genre-defining show. It has enjoyed popular appeal from both American and Japanese fans since its inception. The story is really, really compact, if you want to boil it down to its nuts and bolts. Giant creatures known as Yuchu Kaiju, or space monsters, literally, have been attacking the Earth and destroying worlds. Humanity has tried to stop them. However, their first encounter with the creatures ends in disaster as all hands aboard their, sh- their ship, the Exilion, are lost, including Admiral Takaya, whose young daughter Noriko resolves to become a pilot and to go out into space just like her father did. Some time later, after the death of Admiral Takaya, Noriko enters the training academy at Okinawa, which is basically a high school, except they train with robots, 20 feet tall robots. There, under the patronage of her Onisama, Kazumi Amano, she's the same age, but really she's more beautiful, more pretty, and more talented than Noriko, or at least Noriko thinks so, Noriko comes under the gaze of Coach Ota, her main instructor, who was one of Anmo Takaya's crew. Now, if you describe Noriko in the opening episode, she's clumsy, she's awkward, she's gawking. She's nothing that a pilot of a robot should be. But Ota has this 
unrelenting faith and passion to see her succeed. So much so that even Kazumi, who's, who likes and respects Noriko, can't understand why Oda is pushing her so hard. Despite the fact that a lot of the girls in the school don't like Noriko and don't like the fact that Ota and Amano are giving her such single-handed attention, she successfully beats a school bully who challenges her to a fight in the robots to become Ota's star pupil. It's then that Noriko understands why she's being trained. It is to pilot a ginormous robot called the Gunbuster, whose sheer size and scale would put most super robots in the genre to shame. Why are they developing the Gunbuster? Because the Gunbuster is the only thing that can destroy the space monsters. Ostensibly, you need two people to pilot the Gunbuster. However, you can, if you want to, pilot it on your own. Throughout this show, Noriko goes through loss, gain, happiness, and sheer despair. And the end of the show, she comes out a better person for it. Now, I'm not going to spoil how it ends, but this is one of the weirdest shows I've ever watched. And it's also one of the most inspirational shows I've ever watched, too. Spanning 12,000 years, a feat most writers would balk at. In fact, the only person I think can think of is Frank Herbert in Dune, who tried to tackle a scale and scope of time that long. But it just it, it's one of those titles that you hear about whispered in awesome tones by people who've been there and seen it the first time around and you just wonder this show was produced by Gainax at a time when the studio was trying to struggle to figure out what it was supposed to do with itself there's an interesting book called the Notenki Memoirs by Yasuhiro Takeda who was one of the founders of Gainax he's like a producer at Gainax and he talks about the production of Gunbuster as uh, something that they basically Bandai Visual were looking to expand their their animation line and they decided to employ Gynax to do this and Gynax came up with this insane idea for a cute girl piloting a massive robot to save Earth hey it sounded great at the time when you actually look at the show there's lots of things that can distract from the, the, the sheer awesomeness of the story for one the creation of the Gynax bounce i.e. the fact that all the girls breasts jiggle in a realistic fashion so when they jump from a height and land their breasts move about in a realistic fashion no one had ever tried to animate it that way and Gynax became famous for it also the fact that Noriko presents herself to the world as this happy-go-lucky tee-hee-hee kind of girl it's almost done as a farce in fact the title Aim for the Top Gunbuster is a play of words on Aim for the Ace, a show from the 1970s based on a manga by Sumika Yamamoto, which shows a girl trying to be a tennis star, and she has a coach who sees potential in her, but then trains her like a dog, basically, to become a greater, better tennis player. So the elements of that are rehashed again for the purposes of Ota and Noriko training Noriko to be a great robot pilot. But I think after the second episode, you have no illusions as to where the show is going to go. Basically, this show is Gainax's love letter to its fans back in 1988. The studio was set up by a bunch of fans who loved sci-fi, who loved special effects movies, i.e. tokusatsu shows, and anime. They all loved all three equally, but they felt that they needed to be together to make a, a coherent statement about the universe. There's 
more into this in the Nuntenki memoirs. I, I advise you to go and pick it up. And if you can't find it on Amazon or somewhere like that, find it on eBay. It's a really, really good book, and it, it does tell you more about the foundation of Gynex than anything else. The show itself, the action is so well animated. It's done in such a wonderful fashion. A full marks to Anno. Good God, his opening volley to the universe, and he produces something like this. It's one of those shows where the animation on display is second to none. You can tell that fans paid for this because the whole concept back in the day of the OVA was if you didn't buy enough of the first volume, you'd never see the second volume. So if they hadn't have liked the first episode of Gunbuster, there would never have been a second and a third and so on and so forth. So the fans really took to Gunbuster in a big way. It, it totally revolutionized how they looked at anime in terms of robots and mecha. Because before that, you had these stoic characters like Charaznabal and Amuro Ray and shows like Space Runaway Edeon, you know, where everyone's granite jawed and all of this. And here comes this show about the most powerful robot in the universe, and it's piloted by a 17-year-old. It's, you know, it, it blew people's minds back in the day. Another thing that it dealt with was the Einsteinian concept of faster-than-light travel, where the faster you went, the more time passed for people on Earth. So when they jumped through what they call the Tannhauser Gate, the, the faster-than-light travel method of getting around in Gunbuster, you know, months, if not years, would pass by. There's an interesting episode where Naruko goes back to find her friend who supported her in school back in Okinawa, and she's now a mother and has a daughter and all that, and Naruko has an almost, you know, a moment where she's, her mind's trying to reel and grab hold of purchase to try and understand the idea that so much time has passed and this only gets worse as the the show goes on the show itself has this weird history of how it got to america it was originally subtitled and released by u.s renditions which is a really early outfit from the 1980s when it was later picked up after renditions more or less imploded it was re-released by manga entertainment in the uh, mid-1990s because renditions collapsed and manga bought the license Problem is, is that that's it in the United States for ooh, 10 plus years. And then in 2006, Bandai Visual released a kind of a limited regionless reprint of the, the remastered set. Unfortunately, it had any tra no translation, and it was just a copy of the Region 2 disc. But fans just didn't want to accept it. So in 2007, Bandai Visual USA, that wonderful outfit, decided to release Gunbuster. Now, Gunbuster... Is still available on DVD today from Amazon and you know most brick and mortar shops in America. Unfortunately, it's about sixty dollars for three discs for six episodes. Why am I not angrier that I am being forced to pay this? Because the damn show is so amazing. It's worth paying sixty dollars for this. Now, when you actually buy the box set, you get this wonderful little booklet that warns you on its first inlay page. If you haven't watched Gunbuster, please don't read this any further because it'll spoil the hell out of the show. And it's true, I deliberately made it a point to put the booklet down and watch the whole show. Now, I've owned this for over a year and I only recently got to watch it. It was actually uh, Regan's request for uh, a mecha title that I picked this up. But it's it's one of those weird things. Uh, I can't imagine why I didn't watch this before. It has everything I want. Pathos, Good music, great animation, a clear sense of direction from the director. He's not playing this as if he's trying to figure out what he's going to do with the next episode. He knows exactly how this is going to go. And finally, to, to wrap up like how I feel about the, the show itself in, in the context of trying to give an overview of it, 
the sheer balls it takes to do the last episode entirely in black and white is amazing. Now, a lot of people would say, yeah, he did it in black and white to save money. Well, that's the pro- that's a problem because if you read the Notenki memoirs, you read that the show was produced in black and white but on color film, which still made it just as expensive as if they had tried to color it. But Anno insisted, no, it's got to be done in black and white. The final battle itself is not done animated style. They don't show each missile strike every gun uh, blast every ship attacking one another it's done in tableau freeze frame drawn in one shot and then the camera moves over the action and the background sound effects of the voice actors and the sound from the explosions are put in afterwards I i can't figure out why for the life of me no one in the current cycle of fans has picked this up i think it's to do with the fact that it feels so old it's I mean, for God's sake, it's got things like Tortoro and Van Halen and references to to Tracy Chapman and things like that, and it's decidedly a product of the 80s. But even if you strip that away and just viewed it from, this is a, an alternate universe story that happened in the 1980s, stroke 1990s, stroke 2000s. Who cares? Run with it. I just can't figure it out. Now... Gynax did for their for their 20th anniversary in 2004 they decided to release an official sequel to Gunbuster called Die Buster or as it was called here and in the United States Gunbuster 2 it has the same kind of format and the concepts of the original series but it's characters and mecha are entirely different it's the the second series is directed by Katsuya Surumaki who's more famously known as the director of FLCL and a lot of people went into it thinking it was going to be another FLCL. But the thing is, you really shouldn't do that because it's Gunbuster and it's not FLCL, so don't do that. I can't say whether or not the second series is any good because I haven't watched it. However, when it was first released, the old guard of American fans especially were really vitriolic about how they did not want to watch this or like this show. And now, something like six years later, the attitude is more a case of, it is what it is, it is exactly what it does on the tin and at the time the original Gunbuster was released it was different but we accepted it because it was a breath of fresh air and while Gunbuster 2 or Die Buster is not a breath of fresh air in the same way it is what it is and we should respect it for the the show that it is. There are two compilation uh, movies that tie the two series together into one clump and they do actually link together but only tangentially and very briefly so you don't have to watch Die Buster to understand Gunbuster, and you don't have to watch Gunbuster to understand Die Buster, and you don't have to watch both compilation films to understand both shows. Um, I don't know what else to say. I can't figure out why this show has not found a bigger audience here and in America. It's got everything you would want cute girls, big space battles, an unrelenting enemy, good humor. I mean, we, we can't talk about that. Like, some of the stuff that's in it would later be recycled in Neon Genesis Evangelion like uh, Noriko halfway through the series has a massive traumatic event and will not go out to pilot the gunbuster she's afraid of dying she's afraid of screwing up she's afraid of failing her friends does that remind you of a certain young lad who has to pilot the unit one from another show that I just mentioned or how about young Freud the Soviet pilot and that that's how you date this show the Soviet pilot with her flaming red hair and pissant arrogant attitude does that remind you of another redhead with an arrogant attitude? Yeah. 
really fans should like it more. Another thing, the show itself is bookended at the very end of every episode with these science lessons in which Coach Ota, uh, Kazumi, and Noriko give these great scientific lectures about faster than light travel and space time dilation and stuff like that all of which have been included on the bandai visual usa dvd box set all of it's rubbish all of it's complete crap it's all stuff that gynax made up on the spot none of the f- equations make a damn bit of sense none of the people referenced other than einstein are real and i hear a story from gerald rathcobb of the awl podcast where he recounts how he scribbled down the equation that was on the page of the science lesson, brought it into his teacher, and they said, oh, yes, 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 absolutely, they understand the principles of time dilation perfectly, despite the fact that the teacher itself totally just got missed the fact that that's a totally made-up equation. Who cares? Good story, though. Yeah, I mean, it comes with my highest recommendation. It's a a must-own mecha title, despite its expense at buying the, the American edition. Now, with hard work and guts, go pick it up. 
M-S team. Now, I'm not going to do a straight-up review. I wonder if anybody here knows Jeremy Clarkson. He's a presenter of the TV show Top Gear in the UK, and he does a he has a car review column in the uh, Times newspaper. It's available online, and his car reviews are a little bit different. He he always starts off the review with a, a seemingly something that's completely off topic or something irrelevant to the actual car, and he t that goes on for about. 70% of his column, and at the very end, he'll talk about the actual car, tying it all together. Well, I'm going to do the same thing here for my uh, Gundam review. I was born in 1976, so I was a child of the 80s, especially the early 80s. And I was a G.I. Joe kid. Now, in my neighborhood, you're either a G.I. Joe kid or a Transformers kid. Now, I was definitely on the G.I. Joe side, with a smattering of some Star Wars toys. Now, thinking back now, why did I love G.I. Joe so much? Well, they looked realistic. Like if I was watching the news in the evening with my parents or something, something I might see on television. They didn't look too wild. One of the vehicles of Cobra was just a jeep with a gun stuck on the back. Or the boat. I had the boat, the hydrofoil. It was uh, like you'd imagine. It, it was almost like, like a yacht with a few guns stuck on it. it. It took something realistic and stepped it up just a notch. Or the, another example might be the helicopter I had. It was, looked just like a, like a Chinook helicopter like the U.S. Army had with a couple of fancy guns on it, but, but it was a Chinook helicopter. It, it, it took the things I was seeing on television and, and just stepped it up just one notch to, to make them cool or cooler. The same thing with, with you know, the few Star Wars toys I had. You know, a stormtrooper, okay, it's a guy and he's got some body armor on. There's nothing crazy about that. His his gun, okay, it shoots like a beam of some type, but I, you know I can get into that. It's a, it's a laser gun. I could still wrap my head around it. It's science fiction. The, the same with uh, you know the AT-ATs and the AT-SATs. Okay, it's a big walker and he's got troops inside and he's got guns in the top. It didn't seem too wacky. It, it seemed realistic for for the 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 setting of the toy playing with them, I could totally buy into the universe of these toys. I could not do the same with Transformers. I, I just, the whole thing just seems so stupid to me. Okay, you've got these aliens and they, and they change into Volkswagen Beetles and, and race cars and it just seems so stupid to me. Even as a kid, I, I, I could not buy into it at all. But some of the kids in my neighborhood love Transformers. So I, I think growing up, you're either a Transformers kid or a G.I. Joe kid. Now, when I was in grade, about grade 7, it might have been grade 6, grade 8, anyway, we're talking 87 maybe, I was at school, and I vividly remember this. One, one of my classmates, his name was Johnny, he brought in the Robotech, the role-playing game book by 
Palladium Books. I took one look at the cover. Vertec Fighter looks similar to Transformers. So you'd think that would put me off. But you open it up. And keep in mind, I, at this time, I didn't really know what a role-playing game was. I had no idea. So now that I think about it, it probably was Grade 6, actually. Because at the time, I hadn't been into D&D yet. So he had to explain to me what a role-playing game was. But anyways, I opened... I, so this I'm completely new. I have no idea what this is. I've never seen the anime. Or, or I should, you know, the Robotech show. They didn't air it in Canada. So this is completely fresh. I'm blown away by this. Open it up. I'm holding it in my hand right now because that same year I went out and bought my own copy and this is it. And this was printed in 88. So there we go. You open it up. It's got pictures of all the mechs from the show. And you can flip through it. Explains how the missiles are fired, how the launching system of the different mechs work. It explains the range of these weapons, how heavy they, how heavy the mechs are, the different types of each mech there is. The Vertec Fighter, there's the 1A standard variant, there's the Trainer variant, the Officer variant, the distant destroids, the different destroids, I should say, the 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 uh, Spartan with its missile launching pods, and the go the the the, the Excalibur with its twin. Uh, twin guns, maximum speed of 50 miles an hour, a height of 11 meters, a, a weight of 31 tons. I was amazed by this. I just flipped through it, stared at the different mechs, their weapon systems, how the book explains how they worked, how how many rounds a minute it could fire, the cooling down period needed. Each mech gets a little history. And it goes into different spaceships that you, in the show, you only see for like a few minutes and they're blown away by the Centrati right away. But, but in the book, they get a full-on treatment, what their crew was, 160 officers, 2,900 enlisted men. The, the, the older spaceships that are immediately destroyed, the Lancer 1, Lancer 2, Some of these mechs are as crazy as the ones from Transformers. But because of this book, each mech gets a history, gets the weapons run down. It really brings them to life, makes them realistic. I totally bought into it. Let me read you the description of the Radar X to give you an idea. So it has the picture of the Radar X, complete with a little man standing next to it to give you an idea of the size. And this mech is, is 35 feet high. Instead of arms, it has twin cannons. And at the top, it's a radar. So not like a radar dish, but it's a uh, almost looks like a 2x4. And I guess it sort of spins around, gets you know, like a radar. Here's the description. The Radar X is a non-transformable mecha used as an anti-aircraft unit aboard the SDF-1 by the UN Spacey and local Earth governments. Radar X is lighter weight and faster than other destroids, but relies only on one weapon type, its multi-action laser armament system. However, the lasers provide multiple long-range attack capabilities unequaled by any other mecha except for the Mach 2. 
Despite the Radar X's superior range, it suffers from several disadvantages. It is the lightest and therefore least armored, relies on one weapon system, lacks short-range secondary weapons, although its lasers can be used at close range, and lacks hands, so it cannot grasp, hold, or perform any articulated work. Even its enhanced speed falls short against the speed of the Zentradi battle pods. Since the Zentradi invasion, the Radar X is used primarily for the defense in air assaults and as a peacekeeping tool, especially in remote regions and lowlands where its speed and power can be used to full advantage. And then it goes on with the statistics, the armor in each section, its dimensions, weapon systems explanation, talks about optional weapons, special equipment it has, its computer system, a full page of stats. And for a guy who's never seen, a kid, 10 years old, who's never seen a role-playing game or anything like it before, it blew me away. I went on to buy that book, its expansion pack, the RDF manual, the other expansion packs for the, I guess, the other seasons of Macross, the Infant Invasion, the Sentinels, REF Field Guide. I bought all the books, and I never played a game. I <laughs> I just would read the books, because they were just so much fun, digging into the statistics, the history. One of these books includes the history of the Zentradi. And I, I read all this, at least the first book, before even seeing the anime. It was the, the well, the American version anyway, Robotech. So I had I had bought the the the, the role playing game the original and the RDF manual before seeing the show on VHS. Now I finally got around to seeing it, and I, it might have been a year or so later. I fi- I found it way out of town in Inverary. It was it's, a, it's like an hour drive outside of Kingston where I lived. So my parents would have to go up to that video store in Inverary. Uh, we drove up there to rent the. Uh, the Robotech Macross they didn't have the next two seasons they only had Macross so I rented Robotech Macross one by one it was around this same time where a friend of mine brought over a video maybe a year or so later I was uh, maybe 13 or 14 a video of uh, Akira that was the first real anime that I've seen and I was blown away by that and soon after, we uh, tried some other stuff that was less successful. But that really started me on the path of liking anime and all things Japan. But it started with a friend in school having his Robotech role-playing game source book. Now, I probably wouldn't have seen Robotech without seeing that source book first. But if I had, would I have liked it as much? I think yes, because that show, just like the role-playing game source books, treats its material seriously. The mecha aren't wild and crazy, uh, like in later shows, like Gundam Unicorn, the newest uh, incarnation of the Gundam series. They're they're still grounded in almost reality, we'll say. You can buy into it, just like I was able to buy into, 
you know, G.I. Joe as a younger kid. I was able to buy into Robotech or Macross as, as a viewer. And for me, I think that's a key component of a successful anime show for me personally. I need to be able to buy into the technology. Another factor is the age of the characters, successfully buying into it. Uh, on the TV show, you had, um, again, I'm talking about in, in Robotech terms, since that was the introduction, you had Rick Hunter. He, he's the, uh, you know, he was young, but he wasn't like 12 years old. You know, he wasn't Shinji from <laughs> Evangelion, you know. Uh, but he was a pilot in his own right. You could believe him stepping into a, that Vertec in that first episode and, and sort of trying to clumsily figure out what to do. But, you know, uh, it's a trope or a stereotype of, 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 you know, the anime shows. you got the young kid who stumbles into a Becca. Somehow he gets to work. But that was the first one that I'd seen. So it wasn't old to me. <laughs> it was new. Uh, and, and secondly, it worked. It's... I could believe in it. The characters, you know, they were young, but, but for, you know, militaries now, what, they're 18, 19-year-old people anyway, so I could believe in it. So you had believable characters and technology you could buy into for a science fiction show. Now, these rules, like all rules, can sometimes be broken, for me personally. Uh, an example might be Evangelia. Now, regulars, regular listeners of Anime Pacific know that I dislike Evangelion. And it's not because of the mecha designs. They're fine for the setting it's in. They seem a bit organic, let's say. It's the characters. <laughs> Shinji, I want to rip his head off. I can't stand Shinji. Gets on my nerves. Makes the show unwatchable. Armored Trooper Voltoms, uh, the Paislin Files... That series had older, more realistic characters, I suppose, and definitely more realistic, quote-unquote, mecha. So you'd think I'd be all over that. But uh, the plot is just so ludicrous and, frankly, a bit boring that, that, that I uh, ended up giving it a thumbs down. But the best example for my theory might be the Gundam series. The newer Gundam, let's say anything produced late 90s to now, has had over-the-top crazy mecha designs. I mean, you go down the list. Gundam Wing, Gundam Zero Zero, the newer Gundam Unicorn. At this point, Gundams devolve completely into self-parody. I mean, look at the earlier Gundams. The, the original, you know, Gundam Z, uh, Gundam 0080, War in the Pocket, 0083, Stardust Memories. Yes, some of their mecha designs had you know, a little bit of flair, let's say. You know, like they had those eyebrow, yellow eyebrows that sort of stuck up in a V-shape. They looked a little bit odd. But they maintained the air of quasi-realism that I fell in love with when I found that Robotech RPG source book. Yes, remember that? Again, it comes down, I think, to the difference between G.I. Joe kids and Transformers kids. As a G.I. Joe kid, I need that air of almost realism that you got from the earlier Gundams. 
and lost in the later Gundams. I think Transformers kids let their imaginations run wild and don't care about uh, realism or can does this look right? No, it doesn't matter. It just looks cool, and if it does cool stuff, then, then it doesn't matter as long as it's if it's crazy over the top. Ah, who cares? It's just a toy or it's just a game. I'm gonna buy into it full force. I think those types of kids enjoy the later Gundams with no problem. And in Jeremy Clarkson style, that brings me to my review of Gundam 08 MS Team. This 12 episode OVA released in 1996 had everything that my G.I. Joe loving Robotech RPG loving self wanted in a mecha show. Realistic characters of a realistic military age with mecha that get banged up, roughed up, damaged, need repair, that seem awe-inspiring yet grounded in reality. The story has us following the squad of Lieutenant Shiro Amada of the Earth Federation. He and his squad are in Southeast Asia, in the jungles, fighting the Xeon forces who are fighting a guerrilla campaign against them for the resources in the area. The war is gritty, it's dirty, and it's a tough slog for the Federation. And it's the most quote-unquote realistic Gundam series you're going to get. When I was playing with my G.I. Joes as a young lad, I think it was something like that, like 08 MS Team that was flashing through my mind as I played with my G.I. Joes. Not something cheesy like Gundam Unicorn or like the latest G.I. Joe movie or Transformers movie. No, I was fighting a real war with real people only in figure form on the carpet in my bedroom. So for that kid and that kid who bought every single Robotech RPG book not to play but to just read and look at the stats of the different mechs and the history of the world, for that kid, for myself, and if someone similar is listening, do yourself a favor, go watch Gundam the Zero Eight MS Team. And if you're into Transformers and goofy over-the-top stuff, well, maybe it's not for you, but give it a try anyway.
Hello, this is Oni from Eper's Choice, reviewing Gundam Double Zero for Regal Strongblood at Anime 82. What is a Gundam? Or more importantly, Mobile Suit Gundam. Mobile Gundam Suit was a very, very, very old Japanese animation dating from the late 70s, early 80s. In it's the fact that it was a mech show designed as that. Giant robots fighting giant robots. Its synopsis was a fictitious universe with its own time frame and its own year. Something like the Universal Century. It revolved around the storyline that a principality, Zion, declared independence away from the United Earth Federations. Kind of Star Trekky. The conflict directly affected all of Earth, most of the colonies, Zion, it was smaller, had these new battle suits, Gundams. It was a bloody war. Uh, an awful lot of stuff was lost and people died. And bulk of the storyline was based around that idea. Predominantly around two characters, um, Char Aznable and Amaral Ray. The storyline produced them as direct heroes, one of the titans, one of the combatants, Zion and the Federation, effectively a good versus bad. But unlike previous shows of its kind, the roles were reversed. The bad guys were good, and the good guys were bad. The breakaways were the bad guys in most comic books. In this case, they were the good guys. They seen sense. They seen the corruption that Earth had prevailed, and it was a fight thereafter. Many years have come and gone since then and Double Zero. There has been quite a few versions of the storyline along the basic idea. Good versus bad. Right versus wrong. Who are we and where are we going? Where Gundam Double Zero starts is... It starts on Earth. It doesn't start in a fictitious universe. It is the first Gundam of its kind to start on Earth. It starts from conflict. Conflict that is man. What makes us? What defines us? Who are we? What do we derive our social standing from? Gundam Double Zero Season 1 starts on that premonition. The, Gundam, the Gundams themselves fight for a euphemistic group called Celestial Being. Celestial being is, for want of a better definition, a guerrilla group who initially turn against the Earth forces, or a side of the Earth forces, because there are a couple. And a secret military base demonstrating a new Gundam model that's harder, that's faster, that's stronger, that can kill more people in a single blow. A singular Gundam suit lands in the middle of this testing area and goes against this new Gundam suit. It gets destroyed. The suit that is from Celestial Bing then proceeds to hand every other Gundam pilot its robotic backside. The basis of which is Celestial Bing sees itself as the writer of all wrongs. It sees itself as a tool to end all war through attrition. How do you bring peace? With a knife. Celestial being operate that principle. 
if you can't control the world, if you can't change the world, you'll use a knife to cut out the bad parts, however violently as you can, to resolve the issue. How do you stop world war? You kill the people who are producing the war, not the people who get caught up in it. Brilliant idea. Excellently executed by the force themselves, ultimately tragically failing because they go up against an entire world rather than just a handful of marauders. The main character who flights the Gundam suits produces some interesting results during the course of the storyline, predominantly in Season 2. He is a Gundam master, a Gundam meister. It depends on how you pronounce the, the word. He is in control of the primary Gundam, the most powerful Gundam, of its style, the Exia. Of the four available, it is the most versatile, it is the most rugged of such. The four Gundam Meisters all have a history. They've all been caught in civic battles of sorts. They've all been part of a militaristic campaign in some way, shape or form. Rather unusually, in this case, one of the Gundam Masters is a gentleman called Lokon Stratos. Lokon is a member of the IRA, if you want to look at it on a, on a printed cardboard standpoint. He comes from Northern Ireland. His parents were killed by a car bomb incident, leaving him and his brother to defend by themselves. He joins a splinter cell in Northern Ireland, we assume, and then goes from that. So does his brother, to fight the wrongs that killed his parents, to kill the people who killed his, uh, his parents. Uh, Cessna is part of a country which no longer exists uh, in the Middle East. He was one of these child soldiers who was taught at the fight for a religious base and thrown out with uh, an AK-47 or um, something similar and told to kill. The third Gundam Meister, Hallelujah Haptism, or... Hallelujah Baptism is part of the secondary um, military group on Earth, uh, the Human Reform League. He is effectively a failed super soldier whose head got too messed up to survive in the environment that he was working on. Created a, a persona, an alter ego called Hallelujah Baptism instead of Hallelujah. His militaristic background comes from his psychological and mental abuse at the, at the hands of the Human Reform League. His idea is to end war so nothing like him ever gets credited again. Tierra Adi, Gundam Meister of the Battlecast Gundam, is superficially looks like everyone else. Contrary, he is actually belonging to a subgroup within the storyline yet to completely fulfil their story arc until the last couple of episodes of Gundam. Um, even in season 2, where it appears to be rotates around this hidden group, it only you only realise that Tierra is part of that group. In progression, the Gundam series, this Gundam series, takes a huge step away from the universe of Century, insofar that it takes Earth as its principal fighting ground. Earth, having recovered from quite a few local wars, a semi-genocidal Third World War, to produce a universal energy energy source and a solar band, 
around the Earth to produce energy from the Earth. The countries who lost out most in this are the Middle East and other oil-producing countries. Their loss in total revenue caused armed conflicts in the area, which produced more fighting, which produced more rebels, which produced more sympathisers, which produced more people against the Human Reform League and the United Earth Forces. Again, a vicious cycle. The idea behind the story is that celestial being, having seen all this genocide produced from a supposedly unified Earth, decided that this is enough. They went forward to remove all forms of combat, produce a common enemy, i.e. celestial being, the whole world to unite against to eradicate. The third storyline in it is a boy and girl love story, where a boy is deeply in love with a girl who cares for him and she he cares for her in return of equal standing. She is from a relatively affluent family. He is a local Japanese boy. The idea that their insertion into the storyline is clever. First and foremost, that you have a love interest of such. That you have the common man, the common woman. And you don't realise how important they are up until the point where they're having a conversation about all the stuff that a celestial being is performing around the world and how it's not really great and how they're killing innocent people and how people around them are dying in order them to destroy these military bases. And a bomb gets detonated 150 yards away from them and blows up a bus and people around them get killed. And they realise that it's not actually celestial being that's directly causing the violence. The world always has the violence. It just hasn't affected them directly. With the detonation of the car bomb that close them, they realise that the world is not as big as they thought. This type of violence can happen everywhere, as much as it can in the modern world, even now. Their human aspect brings forth a level of realism in the storyline that has been somewhat missing in the, the precursor of the Gundam series. The story arc evolves around that principle that you can't be everywhere at once. You can't kill all violence at once. You cannot bring a cessation to all violence. The arc itself starts with that principle. Midway through it, it brings into effect that while the Gundam Meisters themselves are extremely strong insofar that their mechs are almost singularly unique, Going beyond them, they introduce three wild cards who are just that wild cards. They are under control of the source behind Celestial Being. The people controlling Celestial Being are also controlling them. They're used for brutality aspects. They get killed for their own worth because of their brutality. The Gundam Meisters themselves are fought with and get fall too, up to the very edge where it seems everyone is dead. The universe is lost, but there might be a glimpse of hope somewhere in the future. Maybe not now, and that leads to season two. Gundam Double Zero brought my interest because it was the first Gundam I had seen in a long, long time. 
that looked like it was stepping away from the very tried, tested, unfortunately somewhat tired Gundam formula. I was wrong, and I was right. The principal aspects of Gundam are still there. The two counterforces, the inability to love thy neighbour, coming together in a common goal, all effective human traits and deficits. All Gundam series have it. Progressing into season two, it carries forward a common thread that was started in the original Gundams and Gundam Double Z. It's the fact that the human race was evolving. And should the evolution, we would go further. This Gundam series replays the same thread, although it takes a little bit longer to realise it. It's there, we just never noticed it. The conclusion on Gundam is that it's a series you should see if you've liked mech shows. If you like the original Gundams, I feel that you like this one as well. Musically speaking, it's absolutely beautiful. The soundtracks are well organised. They are quite spiritual on the openers and enders. It's a lovely aria piece on it. The fight sequences are well orchestrated, both visually and acoustically. The video playback on it is both smooth and well adjusted for the style that it is. The introduction of high-end CG for the most complicated of graphics, as well as the short-run graphics that they use for interframe cell shading and the actual animation of the show are quite fresh, quite sharp. Very much a high-definition video playback sort rather than a standard definition video sort. It will be viewable on DVD. My preference would be to watch it in a high-def video format because of the level of detail shown. Also because the acoustical detail is there to be heard. My summation of the Double Zero is Double Zero, for what it is, for a standalone series, can be watched having never watched a Gundam show. You don't have to watch it to get it. If you remove a prior history, it's a very, very self-contained opening season that will want you to go back for more. If you do get to see the second season, it makes a far more evolved storyline rather than the shoot, kill, bang, kill, shoot that is presented in the original season. Gundam Zero is available from Bandai USA on DVD. The Japanese edition is region free but does not contain the English subtitles whatsoever. This is only from Meeper's Choice, signing off.
I had a hard time figuring out how exactly to approach doing a review of Megazone 23 Part 1, mostly because anybody who listens to Anime 82 that's worth their salt has watched Megazone 23 Part 1, especially. I mean, it's from the creators of Macross, produced by guys who we should totally know from Art Making AIC, names like Noboru Ishiguro, who did Macross, the TV series, and Macross, do you remember love? And, you know, character designs by the legendary Haruko Nikimoto. So I was kind of stumped as to how to approach Megazone 23 without treading over water that's already been tread. Uh, I figured, why not get into a little bit of the more anecdotal things that I found fun or funny or interesting this time watching it as opposed to when I first watched it, oh, probably 10 years ago, 15 years ago. But first, I figure I should do a quick rundown of the plot. Just a quick summary for anybody who's listening to this podcast who hasn't seen Megazone 23 Part 1. And if you haven't, go get it. Go find it. Just watch it and then come back. Our classic archetypical hero is Shogo Yahagi, who's a hotshot motorcycle rider who stumbles upon a new experimental motorcycle uh, called Garland, who tur- that turns out to be a mech in disguise. He's then pursued by government agents who want the motorcycle back. It turns out that Garland, the motorcycle, is actually a port to a giant supercomputer called Bahamut, who, uh, that is actually controlling the world, because the world isn't actually the world. Everybody's on a giant space station floating in space that simulates Tokyo in the 1980s. Along the way, he gets a girlfriend named Yui, who basically looks like Lin Min Mei with green hair instead of dark blue hair. And he fights a bad guy named BD, who controls the military that's been controlling Bahamut and the entire space station the whole time. Now, to get on to things that I enjoyed watching now, as opposed to when I first saw it, I love how 80s Megazone 23 Part 1 in particular is. It just screams 80s. The soundtrack is so 80s with all the synths. It, it's awesome. A lot of, like, wailing guitars, some of that weird synth jazz going on. Uh, the fact that Yui is an aspiring dancer who does music videos, I mean, that's about as 80s as you can get. The fact that she wears these giant leg warmers and has head, wears headbands, I mean, it says it all right there, right? I mean... The world was ensnared by Dirty Dancing and Flashdance around this time, so of course it's going to crop up in an anime, especially one that worships everything cool America in the 1980s. You'll see references to movies like Streets of Fire, which was super popular in Japan, never that popular in the U.S. I mean, at one point, Shogo's working at McDonald's, which I found hilarious. You see David Bowie's name on a billboard. There's America cool everywhere. That Whatever was cool to... Somebody in Japan from America in 1985 is going to be in the movie, which just adds to the appeal for me. One thing that cropped up as I'm watching it again is the sense that the whole thing is basically an adolescent uh, allegory for how the uh, media and military industrial complex are manipulating our youth. And I was struck by that specifically in two instances. You have the uh, pop idol Eve that is supposed to be popular among the youth of Tokyo in 1985 and Megazone 23 Part 1. Well, it turns out halfway through, one of the twists is that Eve is actually a computer simulation created by Bahamut to uh, keep everybody in check within the simulation. Now, Eve, 
I think is a response to the popularity of Lin Min May and Macross and Macross Do You Remember Love? So I'm sure they just decided let's put another pop idol in that is more than what she seems initially because I mean it's Japan and it's 1985, so of course you're gonna have to have something like that in there. But then I was reading on Wikipedia, and you can shoot me for looking at Wikipedia on this, but they mention Max Hedrum as a possible influence, which may be the case, but, you know, there's not much going on that's similar between the two other than, oh, they're both computer simulations, and that they both talk to the hero and give him feedback on things. So that may be there, but I don't think that was a conscious objective on the, uh, the creator's parts. What I did find interesting, though, is... Eve seems like a predecessor to another virtual idol that pops up later in the Macross saga in Macross Plus, Sharon Apple. I found it strange that Eve is probably a conscious predecessor to Sharon Apple in Macross Plus, as though the creators of Macross Plus looked back at Megazone 23 and went, oh, what can we take from this that we can use in Macross? Well, we need a pop idol. Oh, let's do the virtual idol thing like in like Eve in, Mac in Megazone 23. So I thought that was kind of interesting, and I didn't really put that together until I watched it again. Oh, yeah, there you go. And wouldn't it figure that they both kind of come from the same source? Which leads into my second point about the military-industrial complex manipulating the youth. There's a staged coup and military attack by BD and the other members of the group that know about Bahamut. And then at one point, Shogo's friends start enlisting to join the army. We even see Eve herself on a billboard doing a song for military propaganda purposes. It also crops up a few times during the course of the OAV that authority figures and military figures and figures that are well off financially are in on Bahamut and know about the simulation but aren't telling the populace. Another situation where they're telling you authority figures can't be trusted because they know the truth about things and they won't tell people that they consider lower than themselves. And I thought it interesting that in a OAV that's so youth-centered and so adolescent-centered, I mean, this was obviously made for 16, 17-year-old males, I found it interesting that they would go so far as to put a few metaphors into how the government's lying to you or the media with the approval of the government is lying to you, and you can't trust either one. And that crops up a few times in Megazone 23 Part 1 specifically. What is interesting going back and watching this again is realizing that there really isn't that much mech action in Megazone 23 Part 1. We only see Garland in mech form maybe three times in the whole film. We see it the first time Shogo turns into a mech, which happens for maybe a minute on screen. The second time when he first finds the simulated world and the Bahamut computer, he turns Garland into its mech form. And then the third time when he fights BD in the climax of part one. And it seems strange that for a show that's remembered for being mech action and sci-fi action, there's actually very little sci-fi mech action in this show. The show is more about Shogo and Yui's relationship and how they go from acquaintances to lovers through the course of part one. That comes up a lot during the show, and it is more about their relationship and their growth as characters and their personality traits changing and how Shogo becomes more serious and more direct and more driven to make a difference. And Yui learns, gains self-confidence in herself and gains confidence in her friends through her and Shogo's relationship. There's one really bizarre scene I have to point out where during the military coup, Shogo 
has a scene of exposition with Yui while having sex. But what's bizarre about it is he's delivering this exposition. It seems completely disconnected from the sex going on on screen. So we see them doing the nasty, and the whole time he's saying, yes, so the whole world is actually controlled by one giant computer called Bahamut, and we're living in a fake Tokyo. And he's nibbling on Yui's uh, neck or on her shoulder. It's just a really odd thing. And I guess the idea was, well, we have to have the character deliver an exposition at some point to his girlfriend. Why don't we do it while having sex so nobody's bored, right? Something that crops up whenever you talk about Megazone 23 Part 1 is the idea that uh, we are living in a simulation of the world. That we are essentially brains in jars sitting on a shelf and that there's other things going on around us that we're not aware of. Uh, and Megazone 23 is always looked at as influencing like the matrix and dark city and other stories that take this idea to the ultra totalitarian extreme. And what's interesting is I found out that the Wachowskis claim they never saw Megazone 23 part one, which I think they're lying about because they watch anime. I know dark city, uh, David Goyer, I think is fessed up to it, but I don't think the Wachowskis have yet. Uh, and it's interesting because this is one of the first times you see in a major cultural uh, piece uh, this kind of storyline. In a bizarre turn of events, Carl Masick re-edited Megazone 23 Part 1 into Robotech the movie after not being able to get the rights to Macross Do You Remember Love, but being able to get the rights to Megazone 23 Part 1. It was all it was spliced with Super Dimension Calvary Southern Cross, uh, which he also used for the later seasons of Robotech to make the movie in 1986. Uh, and it never came out in the U.S. I guess it came out in other countries, but don't bother watching it unless you want to see it as a curiosity piece after watching the actual Megazone 23 Part 1. It's pretty bizarre to re-watch what Masek did to it, and how he re-edited scenes, and how he cut around moments. There's a scene where Shogo's friend who gives him the Garland motorcycle is gunned down in the actual OAV, and that's completely changed into the screen goes black, you hear his friend go, I'm getting out of here, get out that way, and then we see Shogo get out like he does in the OAV. So his friend doesn't get killed in the US version of Robotech the movie. <laughs> I was going to talk a little bit about Episode 2, because Episode 2 actually ties into the plot of Episode 1. I'm not even going to bother with Episode 3 and 4, because they have nothing to do with Megazone 23 Part 1. But my issue with it is, none of the crew that worked on the first one worked on Part 2. It's a completely different group of guys. It's uh, Yasuomi Umetsu, who I love, doing his own thing, but doing the character designs for part two of Megazone 23, it's a completely different thing. And I really want to focus on part one because it's really kind of the pinnacle of if you watch this, you will know what anime in the 80s was about. I mean, devoid of anything else around it, this is what the music was about, this is what the visuals were about, this is what was interesting to people in 1985 if you watch Japanese cartoons. This is what you would see. All in all, Megazone 23 Part 1 is worth watching, but under the pretext that this really is a product of its time. It was made by the top people of 1985, which would be the Macross team, which it was. Uh, it 
has a lot to do with what was going on culturally in the United States in the mid-80s, and it has a lot to do with disenfranchised youth of Japan in the mid-1980s. Those all come up. And it's definitely a product of its time, but if you can get into that, you will enjoy it under that pretext. Uh, I'd say give it a shot, and if you enjoy that, check out part two, and you can skip part three and the final part, because... It has nothing to do with part one and part two. You can see it, but go in knowing we're not going to follow the further adventures of Shogo and Yui at that point. They're going to change on you completely. To check out more from me, Zach McHugh, visit my blog and podcast, Manime Podcast, at manimepodcast.blogspot.com. Check it out. I'm going to send you back over to Regan. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to be looking at uh, 1984's Heavy Metal Out Game. And of course, there was a uh, retelling. Uh, they used um, footage from the series for OVA 1 and 2, and then they made a third. But we won't be looking at those. You can get those off Naya Torrance with Hong Kong subs. I, you can't buy them legit, so that's why I say pick those up there. But 1984's Heavy Metal Out Game, it's interesting. Um, in the anime encyclopedia, Helen McCarthy who I find is just a fascinating woman. I'm very interested in everything she has to say, and I'm not cutting her down in any way, but when you look at the description of um, Heavy Metal Game, she says it's a dry run for Nagano and for his show to come, uh, the five-star stories. But to me, it's almost insulting because Heavy Metal Game, it's really not Nagano's show. I mean, yes, he did the character designing, and that is very crucial to an anime, and I give him full credit. He's wonderful. But, um, you know... Who who wrote this? Tamino wrote this show. Uh, who directed it? Tamino directed it. And um, I don't know. I, I don't think you can really say it's a dry run. Maybe you could say it's 
basically the show that he ripped off, you know, for a lot of the aspects of mecha design, which he created. So he has the right to do that. But I don't know. It just, I think it's interesting. But um, I know Mamoru Nagano is going to be doing some directing in the future here, 2010, later 2010, from what I've collected. But um, I think when it comes to directing, I think you can't really hold a candle to Tamino. And I think that Mamoru Nagano is probably best working where he's most famous. That's probably manga, but that's just my opinion. But anyhow, I just think it's fascinating how people often cut down heavy metal game and they just kind of say, well, you know, it's just like a shitty version of what five-star stories would become. And I just think that's so unfair because, you know, five-star stories is Nagano's work, okay? But Heavy Metal Games is not Nagano's, okay? It's Yoshiyuki's Tamino's. He's the one who... Yoshiyuki Tamino's. I shouldn't put an S on Yoshiyuki there, sorry. So, I just think that's interesting whenever I talk to people. But, I don't know. Heavy Metal Game really gets a bad bad rap. Most people don't like it, and it's really underappreciated. But, I really like it, and I'm not cutting down Nagano. I think he's awesome, and I think the five-star stories is awesome, but... Like I said, this isn't this isn't his. This is Tamino's. You know what I mean? But anyways, enough of me ranting about this. I don't want to get uh, like hate mail from like Mike Mike Tool or something. <laughs> I'm just joking, of course. So anyways, Mamoru Nagano, of course, famous for mostly character design and mecha design, at least in anime, is totally multi-talented, uh, completely multi-talented individual, best known for probably his baby in the manga world. The Five Star Stories. It's an epic space story and it, it is pretty awesome. And there is also a movie of the same name, which is very, very beautiful to look at. Um, I think it was released by ADV, I'm pretty sure. And uh, it was released a couple of years ago. It came with a nice little booklet. And it's very wonderful to look at, but it doesn't do the mega justice. But, you know, what anime really does, right? And of course, the man with the plan, Yoshiyuki Tamino, a man who really deserves our respect as does Nagano, but a man who really deserves our respect. Um, he is in the world of Mecha, of course. He's a Mecha anime legend. I mean, Mobile Suit Gundam creator, you know what I mean? Uh, he directed classics like Space Runaway Ideon, Mobile Suit Gundam, uh, even Brave Radine, along with one of my all-time favorites. Oh yeah, Zeta Gundam, baby. Now, Tamino and Nagano would team up for this very interesting show, Heavy Metal Game, from, like I said, 1984. But this wasn't the last time uh, either of these two mega-talented men collided. I mean, they collided several times in one form or another on a lot of the same projects, including 1998's Brain Powered. Whoa. Now, there's another show where people are split down the middle. A lot of people like that show. A lot of people hate it. You know, where do I stand on Brain Powered? Well, you have to just wait till next episode when I review it someday. Not next episode, I mean some episode in the future when I look at Brain Powered. I think it's pretty interesting, but we'll get into that far off into the future. Uh, here's a little neat trivia just for you old school fans. I know I've got some old school fans listening to Anime 82. Did you know, I can say, is it Nagano or Nagano? I don't know, but Nagano, I guess I'll say, was one of the character designers on the Strange and Rare OVA Dell Power X, and that was released by Anime Classics reviews not anime classics exodus but anime classics reviews that's that area 88 guy i think that was who released it dell power x you can find it on your local torrent tracker and uh that's a pretty cool one now heavy metal game is a unique show and it's a lot of fun i think solomon on the anime 
Suki forms described it best with his analogy, which I will now quote. Now, he said, if Gundam was Star Trek, then this is Tamino's Star Wars. I mean, there's more comedy here than, well, any of his 80s stuff, and the design work is much more elegant and extravagant, and which I actually enjoy. I mean, El Game is one of the most underappreciated of uh, Tamino's work, and it's often my rebuttal to those who say that he's not a good director. I mean, most people who say this essentially have really only seen probably two or less of his work. So anyway, yeah, have that under your belt for the people who are like Tamino hating to say, what about El Game, baby? Come on. Now, long, long ago in a galaxy far away. Oh, did I mention that some of the characters carry lightsabers? Yeah, it's true. So there's no doubt that Star Wars was a big influence on this series, but coming from 1984, I think that's obvious. I mean, all of science fiction and robot anime from Japan in one way or another was influenced by shows like Star Trek or Star Wars. That's just how it works. We're all influenced by different things, obviously. Anyhow, I'm just going to give a basic synopsis. I won't be doing any spoilers, but I am going to kind of just kind of paint a picture for you guys. Don't worry, I'm not going to get too deep into the story. I'll just give you my opinion on stuff. But anyhow, the story goes like this. The galaxy has been taken over by a tyrant. His name, Olna Poseidon, Emperor of Planet Gostagal. Now, a lot of these names are crazy. This series has some of the craziest names ever. So, yeah, just bear with me, folks, okay? So, one of these planets, ravaged by the Poseidon Conquest, was ruled by what was called the Yaman Clan. And this planet was called Mizun. Now, the king of Mizun flees with his son and the powerful heavy metal, heavy metals like a Mac, heavy metal El game, to the shitty wasteland planet known as Calm. Um, our story starts off with Daba. Now, Daba Myrode, our hero, a young man, not looking for war, not interested in greed, but he wants a chance to see the world and to return to his family's planet. You know, the defeated Mizun one day. Kind of reminds me of like a down and out planet that's, you know, in a world where uh, Emperor Tyrant has taken over everything and he's bombed out on a shitty wasteland planet um, dreaming of one day joining the rebellion none other than da -da -da -da, Luke Skywalker yeah there's a lot of Star Wars elements I got that vibe but I like that because I love Star Wars so anyhow now Daba has been told by his now late father that he is the last of the Mizun royal dynasty forced into exile and of course like I said his dad is now dead but Dabba's chillin', he's down and out, but not totally powerless, because along with his childhood friend, Koi, Koi, is I saying that right? Koi? Um, they rummage around the wastelands and the wilderness of Kom, looking for work and opportunity to get ahead on this shitacular planet. Did I mention the L game? Yes, they still have it. And they haul it along on this big-ass kind of like truck transporter. It's like a, it's on the back there. Now, Koi is Daba's partner and his longtime kid friend, like a childhood friend, and he's basically the comic relief. I mean, he's kind of like a wild and horny, blonde-haired bad boy who dreams of joining the Poseidon military. Why would he want to join those assholes? Well, on this planet, there's no other way to get ahead. But, you know, he just can't seem to get what he wants, and a lot of his plans just end up total disaster. Now, on one of the many long, grueling days roaming the wastelands, they come upon a beautiful young lady who's in distress. Her name? 
amu phanelia, or some translate it as phanelia amu. So either amu phanelia or phanelia la instead of an amu. Anyhow, but things as such in the way of life are often are not exactly as they appear because amu, a former performer, former actor, is in cahoots with the bandit gang run by Queen Bitch herself, Lily, or sometimes translated Lillian. If you will, um, Amu tricks Koi to go out on a wild goose hunt. Well, her gangster friends find the homemade heavy metal that, like I said, a heavy metal is a mech, by the way, um, a mech that's over 15 years old. It looks very odd, and it operates even stranger. It's handmade. It's just it's not like a lot of the other mechs you see around this planet. So the bandits figured this is just like a homemade crap mech, and that. Basically, it's just not finished, but hey, they can always steal it and sell it for parts, right? So there you go. Now, after Lily and the gang, they have a failed attempt to hijack the white heavy metal. One of her thugs is left behind, fatally injured. And as he dies, he asks our hero, Daba, to deliver a cash card to the mysterious arm dealer, Amandra Kamandra. Amandra Kamandra. Sounds like Sanskrit. I know because I, I take yoga and... Uh, we have to learn all the yoga moves in Sanskrit because it's advanced class. And yeah, Sanskrit, ancient Indian language, no one speaks it anymore. It's kind of like Latin, but Amandra, Kamandra, sounds, sounds Sanskrit. Anyways, yes, crazy names, like I said, Amandra, dinner. So anyways, Amu joins up with Koi and Daba and betrays Lily, uh, which is better off because, you know, she, when she's attempting to steal, um, you know, the mech with her, homeboys you know she meets Dab and she really loves him and you know i don't think amu's a bad girl she just she's down and out and you know sometimes you get in with the wrong crowd when you just want to get ahead you want to get out and sometimes that's the only way to do it so you know she fits in a lot better with Daba. and amu is that cute little girl she's that cute japanese girl with the turban um, she has a spunky attitude you probably if you look up heavy metal games you'll probably see pictures of her she's kind of like the famous character with the cute turban and i like her she's a cool character anyhow the bandit's failed attempt ultimately leads to disaster as the leader, Lillian, is ultimately killed. This isn't a spoiler, ladies and gentlemen. This is just like episode four. This is nothing, okay? And she's replaced by the mysterious, charismatic, and too cool for school, Gavlet Gabble. Gotta love these names. And Gavlet, wow, an ace pilot who he's itching. To join the army and get ahead in this one horse town. So Dab and crew, you know, they head for the city to return this cash card to Amandra. As they split up to search, Daba comes across. Hold on, ladies and gentlemen. I'm not telling the whole story. I'm just giving you a basic synopsis. I don't want you to think I'm going through the whole story. Okay, anyways. Daba comes across something rare and wonderful, at least on this planet. A cute little fairy named Lilith. Not Lilin, not Lily like the bad girl. No, this is Lilith. Now, apparently... There's a lot of fairies on the planet, north part of the planet Mizun. But here, fairies are quite rare. And it's basically like your typical fairy tale fairy. A small, like like Tinkerbell kind of, you know? And this fairy is identical to the one in Dunbine. But no relation, okay? I think it's just a Tomino thing. So yeah, if you've seen Dunbine, you'll be like, Hey, that's the fairy from Dunbine. But no, the fairy in Dunbine is the fairy from Algame. Get it straight. So anyhow, he's in a magic club. Daba finds the poor little overworked, abused fairy, and they hit it off. 
They trick the owner and Daba frees her, but, you know, she's down, so she joins the posse. It's just like Cowboy Bebop all over again. So anyways, the fairy likes to sew, yeah. She's always sewing little outfits, you know. Moe, you gotta have, you know, this show has everything. Oh my god. Okay, so Daba never catches up to Kamadra, but Gavit does, and Kamadra tells him if he gets the card from Daba, he'll recommend him for the army. But Daba, he's a good guy. Like, this no-good soldier who's trying to steal from him, or a thug, I mean, asks him to do this favor, and Daba does it. And you know what? Commander's well aware that Daba's trying to give him back the card. Um, but still, he's playing Gavlet. He's playing Daba. He's playing both sides of the sticks. It's like entertainment for him. He's like, I am the puppet master. I am the Wizard of Oz. You know, who's going to win, you know? So, yeah, it's kind of crazy. He's playing both parts of the stick from the middle to see the outcome. And, you know, Daba gets information that Amandra Kamandra is headed for the planet Mizun. So Daba and company hijack a space transport ship set for Mizun. It's a perfect excuse for Daba to finally move on. Finally fulfill his promise to test if he's a real man of honor. Now, will Daba ever find Amandra Commander and prove that he's an honorable man by returning what's rightfully his? Also, will Daba ever avenge his family and planet? What about Amu? Will she ever win the love of Daba? What about Koi? Will Koi ever get what he wants and earn some damn respect? And who is this mysterious Amandra Commander? Rumored to be a merchant of death. He's too well connected just to be some low-end arms trader. And what about Gavlet? Will he find Daba? And will he open his own doorway to glory? This is where the story really begins. Heavy Metal All Game is a well-animated, colorful, and interesting sci-fi epic. It accomplished what so many other animes fail to do. And that's a balance of humor and seriousness. That's perfect. Kind of like Star Wars. It has a lot of little quirky little interesting things, like things I weren't expecting from this show. Um, it's really neat, like at the end of every episode, they show a picture of like a new character, and you're like, whoa, who's this? And they have the name of the character, and it says, introducing next episode. And then they show like this character, and you're like, oh, wow, this weird cool dude's gonna be on the next episode and at the end of every show introduce next episode a new character it's just it's a neat idea and um also i gotta tell you the narrator is really good um the way he just lays out the lines and what he says at the beginning of the show it just sets this kind of loose but exciting tone for the show and um it just has a, it has a fun feeling it's, it just reminds me of like a Space fantasy, just crazy and wild. It's unbelievable, but it's also like really neat and interesting. Some real like tense moments of seriousness, and like a lot of people die, but there's also like goofy little fun and cute moments. It's just it's a really good balanced show, and it's just yeah, it's a really nice animation. At first, you might think, oh, this is poorly animated, but once you watch, you're like, oh, it's just the style. It's just so fluid. It's it almost looks shitty, but it's not. It's actually really good. It's just it's just a unique kind of. Character design, of course, Nagano, he's, just, he's the man. and uh, It's just really cool. And um, some criticize this show for being too long at 54 episodes, and, you know, they may have a point. I overall enjoyed the story, the design, and the mechs. Now, if you just started watching this show and say you're about 
five or six episodes in and you don't like the tone of the show, you think it's too goofy or too silly, stick with it. You may be surprised at a lot of change in tone that comes. So it's just, it has a good good balance, like I said. Now, the L game is a neat little machine. Now, there's all these connections to mech designs of the five-star stories, which is a rip-off of L game. I'm just joking. <laughs> I'm just being cheeky. I, I'm, not, I'm just being very cheeky. Now, I know Nagano was unpleased with the design of L game, thinking it was too bare-boned and that that was a big part of why he wanted to like reinvent the design in his later work. Also, several locations and story elements in the Five Star Stories were heavily, quote-unquote, influenced by Heavy Metal Al Game. Again, I'm just being a cheeky monkey. So all you Five Star Story fans out there, just remember, you can't beat the original, baby. Um, the Heavy Metal L Game is an all-white mech. It almost looks like a suit of European armor. Now, it's really cool. The side panels on the legs, they open up. And it's like air pressured vents burst out, allowing like the mech to jump like massively high, like and like really far distance. Um, it has a detachable laser cannon, and it can be attached on the mech's left arm, which is like plugged into the L game's midsection. And once it's charged with electro currents, it's like a pretty powerful weapon. Um, the docking center on this particular mech is very unique from most on this planet. I mean, to in order to correctly pilot the white heavy metal L game, you must use a specialized land cruiser bike that transforms into the upper chest slash headpiece. Um, with your average mech, you could just jump in and pilot it. You know what I'm saying? But with this strange homemade modified heavy metal, which is 15 years old, it's virtually uncontrollable because it has no shock absorbers. So if you jump into it without the specialized like upper upper chest almost neck head central control piece that's obviously hidden because it's transformed as i said into like a it's like a flying motorcycle and it transforms into like this little like cube that fits in there so if like the average guy comes and tries to like like the robbers who tried to steal it it just shakes like uncontrollably like oh holy shit this has no shock control you know so you can't even you know control it and if you were to steal it I mean, Daba has this watch where he can like remote control, like stop it. So you're, it's pretty good security on this baby. And also the L game, it has the ability to run really, really fast. And he runs like a runner. Like he has like really loose joints. Like unlike a lot of mecha, this is like a really loose kind of loose in the caboose. He can move like a, he has human movements. And it's just because um, the way it's manufactured is pretty neat design. So some of you may wonder why I don't bring up certain other mechs in this anime and it's because I don't want to spoil this great show so that's why I'm only talking about the original L game I'm not talking about you know other modifications or any anything else but there is a lot of neat mechs in this uh, show so yeah yeah now L game has an overall uniqueness to it in feel and design it's famously noted as the first mech to have loose fitting armor over inner skeleton and this wonderful design was ripped off by Five Star Stories and influenced a lot of great mech in Gundam. No, not ripped off. It was just often the case with mecha designers. They, you know, you start off with one show and something's interesting. You get a good idea and then you just continue it. So I'm just 
like I said, I'm just joking. But yeah, it's it's neat. It's like almost like a skeleton with joints, really loose joints, and then it has like armor on top of it. So it's it's a really kind of neat, cool mech. It's one of those unique mechs that stand out. Like certain shows have really unique mechs that are really cool. Like this Armor Trooper Votums. Um, Dragner also has some really weird mechs. So uh, I might have to bring some of those up on the next show, part two. But yeah, it's really cool. So yeah, to sum this all up, this is a beautifully drawn, fun show with super unique and strange mecha. I really don't know why the Western mecha fans don't seem to notice its existence. So if you want to try something refreshing, you want to try something unique, something interesting, and yes, even beautiful. Give this show a chance. Now, as I am often overly biased, I usually don't say I'm reviewing. I usually say I take a look at. And as you can probably tell, I absolutely love this show. Ladies and gentlemen, Heavy Metal Al Game is unavailable to buy in North America. There was a pretty kick-ass box set released in Japan. So I guess you could order it from Japan or there is a fan sub out there. I'm sure you can find it. Heavy Metal Game, pretty neat and important show. Check it out if you have the balls, mecha balls. There you have it, ladies and gentlemen, part one to what will be the most epic, the longest, the most glorious mecha review podcast of all times. Part one of Mecha Madness. Make sure you come back, ladies and gentlemen, next week for part two. I have a lot of great guests. You might say part two is... Hmm, if it was the land of Berserk, you could, you could say this was the Mecha God Hand. I have some powerhouse guests, ladies and gentlemen, some real hot shots. Jeff Rich Lather from Lather's Blather. Also, Alpha Internet Male. The Demon Lord, Delsa Rat. The Man with the Master Plan, of course. Gerald Rathcobe, South African Nightmare. Also from the Anime World Order. We also have my main man, Dane. One of my greatest comrades. And pretty much a guest on Anime 82 from the Anime Pacific show. So ladies and gentlemen, make sure you come back for what will be the Mecha God Hand, part two to Mecha Madness. Are you brave enough to make it? 